this is Emily. And this is Bridget. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today on the podcast, we are talking through a truly troubling but important subject, and that has to do with the intersection of gender and veteran suicide. Sadly, there was a new report released earlier this week that we really wanted to jump on and talk through and parse through to better understand why there are new numbers out showing that women veterans are much more likely, and the data on this is new in terms of being able to make these conclusions, but women veterans have been found to be much, much more likely than their non-veteran counterparts to commit suicide, to take their own lives. And we just have to say, this is a topic that a lot of people might find hard to deal with, and we totally understand. So big trigger warning, this is going to be an episode that deals with some heavy issues like sexual assault in the military and self-harm and suicide. So um, if those are issues that are complicated for you to deal with, you should just know that that's going to be the topic of today's show. Yeah, and we don't, I mean, we don't want to be downers about this, but I feel strongly that it's important for us to talk about these intersections and for us to talk about what we can do more of as a country and as individuals to help our veterans, men and women alike. Well, because if we aren't talking about it, if we aren't studying it, if we aren't getting research and data around it, there's no way that we're going to be able to properly tackle it. So even though it's not a topic that I think anybody necessarily likes talking about or right. finds cheery or uplifting, it's a topic that we have to deal with because if we're not dealing with it, we're not dealing with it. Right, exactly. And what's interesting here is that suicide is stereotypically associated with maleness. And in reality, it's true that across the broader population, men or people who identify as men are much, much more likely to commit suicide than women are across the board. But what is troubling is this sort of old stereotype of the older veteran who takes their own life. And of course, by stereotypical, we're talking about men here. There is a lot of truth to that stereotype. The suicide rate amongst middle-age and older adult veterans remains the highest. Now, researchers have long thought that suicide rates were higher across the board for older veterans. But because the VA just completed a comprehensive examination of more than 55 million records from 1979 through to 2014, they actually have new research that shows that statistic is not true for women veterans who are much more likely to take their own lives shortly after their time in service. And that finding has some serious ramifications for how we implement suicide prevention programming. Yeah, I think when you look at folks who serve and then end their own lives, I do think there's this this stereotype that it's older folks who have long been living with this trauma their whole lives. Maybe they've dealt with alcoholism. Maybe they've dealt with, you know, addiction issues. Homelessness. Exactly, exactly. I definitely think in pop culture you see this idea of the older veteran who's been trying to get it together and just sort of can't. And I think shifting the way that we think about it along the lines of gender and it's more along the lines of what is actually happening in reality, I think is going to be instrumental in how we come at this issue. Because if you're expecting veteran suicide to look like an older person who has been, you know, dealing with it, slogging through for 30 years and then just can't handle it anymore... But in actuality, it can look like a woman who is struggling to readjust to her civilian life and can't, finds out she can't very early on. 
I think we need to understand what that looks like as well. Because the solutions will differ dramatically. Exactly. So let's take a look at the numbers because another really alarming data point that came out of this new research is looking at and comparing veterans versus non-veteran suicide rates when it's broken down by gender. So if you consider the fact, first of all, we have to acknowledge that men across the board are much more likely to take their own lives. Uh, so that does affect some of the conclusions you might draw here. However, this new data shows that male veterans are 19% more likely than male non-veterans to take their own lives. So if we want to pinpoint the impact that serving in the military has on suicide rates, that's a 20, almost a 20% increase that makes you as a dude more likely to commit suicide. That's a pretty alarming number, isn't it? Yeah, that's alarming. Until you see the numbers on women. Because when it comes to women veterans compared to non-veteran women, women veterans are 250% more likely to take their own lives than non-veteran women. That is such a huge difference. That's so alarming. Exactly. And another way of breaking these numbers down, because that percentage comparison can be a little bit tricky, is by thinking about suicide rates expressed by the number of annual deaths for every 100,000 people in America. For male veterans, that figure is 32. So 32 deaths related to suicide amongst men veterans for every 100,000 people versus only about 20 for non-veteran men out of every 100,000. So 32 versus 20. The numbers for women are way further apart. When it comes to women veterans, the number is 29 out of every 100,000 people, whereas for non-veteran women, just civilian women, the number is five. Wow. So five versus 28, much bigger difference than 32 versus 20. Now, just to add another wrinkle to that data, which I feel like is already a little bit complicated... The thing is, is that because many veterans, like we said, are killing themselves long after their military service, it's suspected that their time in uniform may have little to do with the reason why they've chosen to end their own life. Um, Many experts actually surmise that the farther away a veteran is from their time of serving, the less and less their suicide has to do with their time in the military. So the same reason that that civilians kill themselves, you know, depression, um, mental health issues, difficult life circumstances... Experts think that these are the same reason that service people kill themselves the longer removed they are from when they served. And just to sort of add on to that, most research has been focused on men, these these older men who to end their own lives, but they end up missing the fact that younger women, they're actually much more at risk than older women when they come home from their military service. Unlike men whose suicides predominantly happen later in life, women vets seem to be much more likely to commit suicide in the first few years out of service. There was a great quote from Alan Zarambo. He writes, The rates are highest among young veterans, the VA found in new research compiling 11 years of data. For women ages 18 to 29, veterans kill themselves at nearly 12 times the rate of non-veterans. It's true. The differences between female veterans and civilian women in terms of suicide rates are much more extreme in that early age bracket, the 18 to 29-year-old bracket, as compared to suicide rates amongst veteran women versus non-veteran women later on in life. And we are not 
trying to compare women's suicide to men's suicide to say that one is at all more important than the other. I just think that I get a little bit enraged when I read this stuff because it is clear to me that we are failing our veterans, our veterans who volunteer to serve on behalf of our country. And I get on my like patriotic soapbox and get really defensive, not just because I got veterans in the family and who I love and care for, but you know, there's a lot of talk about broken Washington when it comes to veteran care and the the VA in particular. And this data is a good first step in starting to improve suicide prevention efforts. But it's clear to me that we are not doing enough for men or women veterans to really provide them with the lifelines they need in their moment of greatest need. I couldn't agree more. I'm probably a little less rah-rah about the military than you are, Emily, just to be, you know, full disclosure. True. Um, I have a lot of critical things to say about the military as an institution in terms of our, you know, foreign policy. But my main thing is that we got to support the individual veterans. We have to support our service people. These are the people who are putting their lives on the line to keep us, to presumably keep us safe. They're making the toughest decisions. They're away from their families for so long. I have so many service members in my family, you know, being from the South. It was a huge part of our upbringing was the military. Right. Um, so many of my cousins who couldn't pay for college didn't have this like easy avenue to sort of a comfortable middle class life. Military service was how they did that. And they sort of bought into this into this dream or this contract that if they signed up to put their lives on the line to take care of America and defend America, America would take care of them and defend them. And when you look at this data, when you unpack it, it's just very, very clear we aren't doing that. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better. And I think when you break it down based on class, too, it gets me, it gets my, uh, my more liberal socialisty side up in arms just as much as my military loving side <laughs> of, of myself up in arms because we're, we're basically recruiting troops on, like, on the backs of our nation's least financially stable populations. Exactly. And so even as someone who is very critical of the military, I, the, the fact that so many people feel so comfortable crapping on our service members right. when so many of them are, are working class or don't have these, these avenues to middle, a middle class life like other folks might have. It just looks like another way to shame and crap on the poor. Yeah. And this is so not a partisan issue for me. Um, because I, I like to play both sides of the aisle sometimes and I can be persuaded, but, um, I guess I'm a relatively moderate liberal person, but, this to me is so not a partisan issue at all. And I, I would be curious to hear from our, li- I'm sure we will hear from our listeners on this one. But what we need to do next is really peel back these layers a little bit more and understand, all right, what are some of the underlying causes behind why so many of our service members are choosing to end their own lives? We're going to go there right after this quick break and a word from our sponsors. <laughs> And we're back, and we want to talk a little bit more about some of the underlying causes behind this troubling information around the increasing rates of women veterans and suicide, in particular, as compared to non-veteran women or the, the civilian population of women in the United States. And the first thing that comes to mind, I, I, at least I thought of right away, was the impact of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. We know that a lot of our veterans who've come back from the wars in the Middle East that we've been waging for quite some time now have been struggling with PTSD, and that PTSD is a relatively new diagnosis with 
ever-evolving treatment options. But what I found really fascinating is that it appears women are diagnosed with PTSD at higher rates than men, despite the fact that men seem to experience more traumatic events on average than women do. And that's according to a review of over 25 years of research in the November issue of the Psychological Bulletin by the APA, the American Psychological Association. Well, again, I think that really just goes to show that when we think about what kind of service members are the ones who are dealing with things like PTSD, I don't feel like we think of women. Yet, women are the ones, according to this data, who are suffering from PTSD the most. You're absolutely right. But the numbers are different between men and women in the general population versus men and women veterans. In the general population, women are twice as likely as men to develop PTSD, whereas according to the VA, or returnees, basically service members who are coming back after They've become veterans after they're no longer active duty military members and they're seeking treatment at the VA, which, by the way, is a small population that like not every veteran comes back to the VA for care. But amongst those who do, rates among men and women diagnosed with PTSD are the same. And one thing that I can't help but wonder when we look at all this data is how is this impacted by the idea that not every service member who is dealing with these kinds of issues might choose to seek mental health help, right? Are there folks out there who are struggling, who don't even get to the level of being studied or talking to a mental health professional? And how might that impact these numbers. I'm just very curious. Yeah, I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done on this. It kind of reminds me of the situation around ADHD diagnosis, because we are all really socially conditioned to think of boys and diagnosing them with ADHD, and that leads to lower diagnosis uh, rates amongst little girls or young women. But that's starting to change and correct itself based on those those biases. So it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't help but wonder how these gender biases have impacted even who feels comfortable coming forward with these issues totally. and how that impacts the numbers and how we're studying it. Totally. And there's also a neurological element here that I found really interesting. There was a study done by Dr. Sabra Inschlicht, a staff psychologist at the San Francisco VA Medical Center, which she really looked at how men and women learn fear, how they experience trauma and fear. And what was fascinating, this is a a study published in the October 2012 issue in the Journal of Psychiatric Research. She took 10 men and 13 women, all of whom had been diagnosed with PTSD. That was already across the board true. And she showed these folks various images on a computer screen and zapped them after a certain after certain images. It's With kind like of an weird. electric like, current? Yes. She, I don't know how... This sounds like one of those studies you read about in Psychology 101 before ethics were involved in science, but I'm sure it was just a minor zap. She hooked up electrodes to their palms so they could... uh measure the psychological response, how, how like the sweat response, heart rate, see how their brain was lighting up. And after certain images, the test subject received a small electrical shock. Gradually, the subjects, these people, began to associate particular images with something unpleasant. In other words, they learned to anticipate the impending shock or the danger. And this is something called fear conditioning. What's fascinating is that the researchers found women responded much more strongly to the visual cues than men when they saw an image that they knew was going to be followed by a shock. So it's almost like we have higher rates of fear before a bad result than our male counterparts do in terms of experiencing trauma, fear, or stress. That sounds so right to me. I have no trouble at all believing that, that women 
knowing like, oh, I know something stressful is coming. And that anticipation is what generates that sweaty palm fear response. Right. I mean, it also, I mean, we're drawing major correlations here that are kind of a stretch, but I would also say it makes me think of anxiety disorders being a much more female thing. Because that's really what that feels like to me is like the anxiety of an impending trauma of yeah. some kind. As an anxious person, I can tell you that <laughs> thinking about having to do something stressful oftentimes is the thing and then you do it and it takes five seconds right. and it's not a big deal. But it was that week of stressing yourself out, out about it that is really the tough part. Now, even the researcher herself admits that this study was small in terms of sample size, and there's a ton more research that's needed because there were lots of questions left unanswered. For instance, she says, all our study participants had PTSD, so we couldn't arrive at any conclusions regarding whether women as a general rule condition more strongly than men do, or if it's a difference found solely amongst men and women who already have PTSD. And they didn't examine what may drive the gender differences that they found. So it might be biological, such as hormones or neuropeptides that might mediate those effects. So there's lots more research to be done, but PTSD as a reason behind veteran suicide is not as simple as it seems. Even though they're definitely connected and correlated, women and men experience PTSD differently. So we have to think about our solutions and our suicide prevention programming in a with a gendered lens, in my opinion. It seems like we come back to that position <laughs> so many times Funny. when we talk about mental health issues or medical conditions that we're not studying folks all along the gender spectrum in the way that they sort of deserve to be studied, that we study men, and then we use the findings from men to to talk about the issue writ large. Or we study women, and we we use that. We, we're that not, never happens. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's usually men. Yeah. It's usually men. But we don't, we're not allowing... Yeah. <laughs> rah, rah, exactly. Um, no, but we're not allowing for, you know, an inclusive understanding of how we present in the world and our, and our you know, the diversity of, of people who live on this planet. We're not studying in a way... We're not studying people in a way that allows for that diversity, right? right? Because where do gender nonconforming folks fit into all this data, right? right? Like, if we only think about it in terms of a binary, or even worse, just studying men and no one else, we don't, we won't get anywhere. Exactly. Although I have been pleasantly surprised by how many folks tweeted at us after, I don't know which episode, maybe it's multiple episodes now in which we get on our soapbox about this very subject, saying this professor at this medical school or this class at my medical school had intersectionality built into the curriculum. And I thought, dang, that is great to hear. Totally. I think it's one of those issues that's slowly catching up with where we are now. And I love hearing about people's experiences where folks are getting it right so that we can finally turn the tide on this issue. Absolutely. Now, jumping off to another underlying cause behind these truly exceptional and not in a good way rates of suicide amongst men and especially women veterans when compared to their civilian counterparts. There's another theory out there that I have to admit is pretty compelling, despite being kind of hopeless uh, in some ways, and that is the idea of selection bias. There's a really interesting correlation between people who volunteer to join the military and serve their country through the armed forces versus people who were drafted. So what's fascinating is that male veterans 50 and older, the vast majority of whom served during the draft era, which ended in 1973, had roughly the same suicide rates as non-veteran men in their age bracket. Wow. So this idea that only younger male veterans 
who served in the all-volunteer force and women who've always been serving on a volunteer capacity because we were never included in the draft, it basically suggests that maybe suicide rates have more to do with who chooses to join the military than what happens during their service. Well, that's exactly what Claire Hoffmeyer, the VA epidemiologist who led this research, says. Hoffmeyer pointed to recent research showing that men and women who join the military are actually more likely to have endured things like difficult childhoods, including sexual and emotional abuse. So really, it could come down to who these folks are, what their lives have looked like, that end up impacting whether or not they choose to end their lives. Other studies have actually shown that Army personnel before enlistment had elevated rates of suicidal thinking, attempts, and various mental health problems. Um, But those studies did not break out the numbers for women. Right. You know what I think, as depressing as that theory is, I think what it really points to for me is that we as a nation have very little in the way of mental health services accessible to all Americans. People in need of mental health support have very few places to turn, and one of which seems to be the military. Absolutely. And honestly, I would even take it a step further and say, not only in this country do we need easier access to mental health services across the board, but particularly for veterans, this is exactly the kind of thinking that drives my own personal ideology in terms of being you know, anti-war. If we really cared about these people, if we really cared about not ha- signing them up for a life of hardship and a life of dealing with really difficult things for a very long time, up to and including possibly taking your own life, we would not have policy that makes allowances for endless war. We, we would be more careful about how we how we are thinking about these people and, and what we're putting them up against. And another wrinkle in terms of why you might see women service members taking their own lives sooner after returning from service is the huge, huge epidemic of sexual assault and trauma in the military that often goes without any kind of justice of any kind. Exactly. In fact, this past May, there was a new report released from the DOD Showing that, showing, I would say, mixed results when it came to assault uh, in the military and the epidemic that is women veterans being assaulted and raped without having any recourse to real justice in the system. The report found that the number of service members reporting cases of sexual assault in 2016 went up to 6,172 compared to the year prior at 6,082 all of which was a huge increase, almost a 200% increase from 2012 when only 3,600 or so cases were reported. What was really weird was to see the DOD kind of double speak on this. They were saying the fact that more women are reporting sexual assault shows that there's increased trust in the system. And isn't that great? It was like a real ministry of double speak moment. Um, Because I read that and scratched my head reading some of the quotes from the administration saying how great that was. But what they said was, quote, and this is Elizabeth Van Winkle, the assistant secretary of defense, at a press conference says, we see the increase in rates of reporting as an indicator of continued trust in our response and support systems. But thank God for Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who said in a statement, The truth is that the scourge of sexual assault in the military remains status quo. Today's report disappointingly shows a flat overall reporting rate, which is true. There's barely any increase. And a retaliation rate against survivors that remains at an unacceptable 6 out of 10 for a third year in a row. Basically, 6 out of 10 women who reported said that they faced retaliation and were either squeezed out of the military or didn't find any justice through the 
the fact that they reported. Wow, that sure sounds like increased accountability and trust in the system to me, Emily. I know, right? Well, it was interesting that Senator Claire McCaskill, a senior member of the Armed Services Committee, uh, also a Democrat, said that these numbers show real continued progress as a result of our historic reforms to the military justice system. McCaskill and Gillibrand have been loud proponents of increased transparency, accountability, and justice for women victims of sexual assault and rape in the military. And while I, I for sure know that there's been increased visibility brought to these issues that might have to do with the increased confidence in reporting, This anonymous survey still found that 58% of victims experienced reprisals or retaliation for reporting. Not cool. Not okay. But I will admit that the numbers are mixed because this is an anonymous survey delivered every two years. And the overall number of service members who experienced some kind of sexual assault in 2016 was 14,900 down from 20,300 in 2014. So that's, that is a significant you know, uh, almost a f- over 5,000 less assaults, according to this anonymous survey. Not that they're all being reported. If you look at the reporting, 14,900 people said they were assaulted, 6,000 plus, just over 6,000 reported. This is one of those issues where it's hard for me to even trust the data. Sure. Because I know with things like sexual assault and adding in this code of military silence and sort of what it looks like to be a, uh, you know, part of a, part of the, the, what am I even like saying? Like the brotherhood yes, of enlisted. Thank you. Yeah. It's like you don't turn on your fellow service member. Exactly. So just knowing a little bit about that vibe yeah. makes it really difficult for me to even trust these numbers because for every woman out there who does report, who even knows how many right. don't? I know. Well, and you're saying, even in this anonymous survey. Exactly. There's got to be people who didn't admit it. And unfortunately, there is, without a doubt, a clear link between sexual assault, rape, that kind of trauma, and suicidal thinking or ending up taking your own life. And so we can't overlook how much of a deal this is. And we really, I mean, we could talk all day about the important work being done to end sexual violence in the military and how much more needs to happen on that front uh, but we should get Senator Gillibrand up in here. So yeah. She do that with us sometime. Totally. Call us. One other added wrinkle to all of this that I really found just, I, I couldn't even really wrap my head around it. And as soon as it came up in the research, I was kind of both shocked that I had never thought of it and sort of weirdly just horribly depressed mm. is that women attempt suicide more often than men, but succeed less because women usually use pills or other methods. So when you look at women who have served in the military, they're much more likely than their civilian counterparts to know how to use a firearm. And so they're more likely perhaps to successfully end their own lives using a firearm than women who are non-civilians who are using other methods. When I heard this, this stat, I was so sort of troubled and depressed, but also it kind of, it, I don't want to say it makes sense, but it it sort of helps explain the inexplicable. It's true that veterans affairs researchers found that 40% of the female veterans who did end their own lives chose to use guns compared with 34% of civilian women. So basically women veterans are much more likely to use a firearm for those ends and tragically that sets them up to be more likely to actually end their own life. Yeah, and I think not not being someone who serves and not being someone who was around firearms that much, right. I would never that would never occur to me, but seeing it laid out in such plain detail just crystallizes 
how sickening and depressing and unacceptable this this issue is. Right. The one thing I would add is that researchers say that this is enough to have a small difference on explaining the massively increased risk that our women veterans have for suicide than non-veteran women. But it's not the whole story. There's a lot more going on. Now, one final underlying cause behind some of these numbers that makes it especially challenging, I think, for women veterans navigating the transition into civilian life is this idea of the, the double bind that women service members face. And what I mean by that is that whole solidarity of the brotherhood that is the armed forces isn't something that's super duper inclusive of women. Uh, they might not ever feel like they truly belong in such a massively male-dominated environment. And yet, on the flip side, when these exact same women veterans re-enter civilian life, they're expected to be warm, loving, caring, and ladylike in a way that they're, they haven't been socialized or conditioned to be for years, sometimes decades, of serving in the armed forces. And that can make them feel like they don't have any real sense of belonging or connection in either one of those realms. Well, I, that really sounds to me just like what so many women go through where you're never enough. You're When you're in the military, you're not one of the boys. You're not really accepted as tough enough or good enough, and you're always proving yourself. And, you know, as we know from all the times we talk about things like microaggressions, I can only imagine how that adds up bit by bit by bit by bit, how it just grows and grows inside of you, giving you these signals that you're not good enough, you're not worth it, all of that. You're always being tested. Right. And then after on top of dealing with that as if that is not enough, going home and realizing the things that were prized when you were in the military, the thing that made you good at being in the military might not necessarily make you good at being a quote-unquote traditional woman or right. a wife or mother, right? This idea of having to fit back into this mold of civilian life and what civilian life tells you it looks like to be a quote-unquote proper woman, how difficult that must be after then navigating this entirely other minefield of the military. I can imagine how that just makes you feel set up for failure. Exactly. Danielle Simpson, who works the Veterans Affairs Crisis Hotline, in speaking to NPR, she shared, this winter I spoke with a female veteran who she had been in Afghanistan seeing combat, and so she was really dealing with a lot of PTSD and then coming home and being expected to be the soft, caring, warm mother and wife that she was expected to be in civilian life. And she was really struggling with that transition. I mean, I can imagine anybody would struggle with that transition. I think that women in all kinds of different professions probably struggle with similar similar transitions. But then having it be the military is probably just so much more intense and tough. And, you know, I just can't imagine trying so hard to fit in in the military, which is this, you know, brotherhood, bro-y, hyper-masculine. Aggressive in industry. Right. It's aggressive. And yeah, then, that's it's what's supposed to be good exactly. about that, you know? And then yeah. finding that those th same things that got you rewarded just make you not feel like you're doing a good job in your civilian life. And back in the domestic sphere, like, I can imagine that it's already so difficult to dovetail back into civilian life. That's just another added challenge that women face that I think is unique. And we know, even going back to the very first episode that you and I put together for Stuff Mom Never Told You, that 
having solid connections in your life, feeling like you have friendships or loved ones who respect and accept you for who you are and feeling that sense of love and belonging is so foundational to your mental health that it does not surprise me that what might seem like a trite issue of not feeling like one of the guys in the armed forces and not quite feeling like you belong in civilian life it might seem like not that big a deal, but it adds up because it severs your ability to have deep, trusting, vulnerable connections and to allow yourself to be fully seen and respected. And on top of that, if you're someone who is struggling or having a hard time, if back in civilian life, you don't feel like you have somebody that you can genuinely open up to, maybe you don't feel like you can really talk to people about what you're going through. I can imagine that's just another burden and another way that this is so complicated. And we're going to talk through exactly what options do currently exist for folks in that exact situation after we come back from this quick break. And we're back and we're going to talk through some of the resources and services available to veterans who might be struggling with those feelings of depression, PTSD or suicidal thoughts. So something to know is that the VA has actually recently made some significant progress in terms of healthcare delivery for women veterans. Currently, VHA initiatives and programs include rolling out enhanced women's health care, comprehensive primary care from an interested, proficient, and designated women's health provider at any access point across facilities nationwide, um, more mental health care for women veterans, um, staffing of every VA medical center with a women veterans program manager, and training more than 1,200 VA primary care providers in things like women's health. And while that progress has been made uh, back in 2011, when a lot of sweeping reforms came through to make those improvements, unfortunately, more recently than that, Congress has failed time and time again to provide more resources to really solve these issues. So back in 2015, H.R. 1607, or the Ruth Moore Act of 2015, was introduced and passed in the House to really address the epidemic rates of sexual assault happening in the military. That act would have allowed a statement from a person who'd been sexually assaulted to serve as sufficient proof that the assault occurred in the disability benefits claim process, because really many, many veterans were being dishonorably discharged and not given their disability benefits if they couldn't prosecute through the chain of command, which might have been part of perpetuating assaults or being complicit in turning the other cheek to assaults that were happening uh, in military court processes. So really, this was enabling veterans who were claiming assault for that claim alone to be sufficient for them to gain disability benefits that they could have otherwise had access to. Now, despite the fact that it passed the House, it failed to do anything significant in the Senate where it was sent off to a committee to basically be uh, researched into oblivion. The same thing happened a year later when H.R. 2915, the Female Veterans Suicide Prevention Act, which is much more directly pertaining to this topic, was introduced and passed in the House that would have directed the Secretary of Veterans Affairs to identify mental health care and suicide prevention programs and metrics that are specifically effective in treating women veterans as a part of the evaluation of their suicide prevention programs. Basically, it was saying, hey, while evaluating all the efforts you're making on suicide preventions, we have to make sure that we're looking at this with a gendered lens, which if we have covered anything, hopefully, thus far in this episode, 
it's become clear that that's significant, salient, and important. It passed in the House on February 9th, 2016, and went off to the Senate, where it stagnated in a committee, and nothing came from it. Well, that's what's so frustrating, I think, about this issue, is that I think both of these programs sound great, but if we're not actually getting anywhere on them, what's, what difference does it make? I think if you're actually interested in tackling this issue, which as Americans, we certainly should be, we got to get somewhere. We got to get some traction. And I don't think the reforms as, as good as they are from 2011 is going to cut it. I think that it really is going to take some sort of meaningful action on the part of our lawmakers to make sure that people, that we're not sending people, you know, to preventable early graves because they served for their country. Exactly. And ironically, slash unfortunately, slash I'm not sure how to feel about this necessarily because the details aren't out yet, but Trump alert, because Donald J. Trump, the president of the United States, did in fact issue by executive order a requirement for Veterans Affairs to take part in a total structural reorganization. Now, they say, the VA says that they always had plans to reorganize and restructure its workforce, executive order or not. So when the White House and the Office of Management and Budget charge agencies to develop comprehensive reform plans to reorganize, the VA says that they already have the basics of their plan in mind. But as of right now, as of this recording, those plans aren't super transparent. We don't really know what a structural reorganization is going to focus on or going to result in. It looks like they're going to be focused on modernization and efficiency and all that private sector talk for like potentially outsourcing things. But who knows really what that means? To his credit, VA Secretary David Shulkin did lay out all of his top priorities, 13 top priorities to be specific, one of which absolutely includes veteran suicide. He says combating veteran suicide is VA's top clinical priority, and he called it a public health crisis. So there's there's some reason to be hopeful and optimistic that in today's day and age with this administration, with this Congress, there's still the potential for improvement here. I just hope that that improvement doesn't leave women veterans behind. I hope it doesn't leave women veterans behind. And further than that, I would say I hope it's done in a transparent way because I one of the things I hate so much about how we deal with veterans in this country is that Veterans issues are this thing that we don't have, if you're a civilian, that we don't even have to think about. And I think the idea of this being done in a way that's not transparent will only add to that notion that it doesn't matter what these people are going through. Like, who cares what veterans are going through? And I think that we as Americans, all of us need to be invested in terms of how our country and our government is dealing with veterans and the issues they're going through. These aren't people that we should be thinking about as, you know, off to the sidelines whose issues that we don't care about. These are the people who are keeping us safe every day. We have a vested interest in making sure that they are being treated well and that they're being treated fairly and that they have the support that they need. Otherwise, what the heck are we doing? Right. When is your bid for Republican uh, office? <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's nuanced. I just want to make it clear. Clearly, yeah. I hate the military, yeah. but... <laughs> I just love seeing you. No, I mean, it's, it's nuanced, right? Like, yeah. like you know, um, you can be... I, I Totally. I, I, people might write in about this, and I have very hyper... hyper. I have intense feelings about the military, obviously. But at the end of the day, I think that we need to be protecting our service people. Yeah. And I think that... What makes me the angriest is that we aren't protecting them. In fact, we are failing them and nobody seems to care. And I think that for me, it begins and ends with 
we need to be making sure that the folks who are making the biggest sacrifices for us, yeah, I, like whether or not you're down with the military or not, like that, like that is accurate. But we are not having their backs, and that mm. pisses me off. That makes me very angry, even as someone who is oftentimes very critical of the military. Love it. I couldn't have said it better myself. The last thing I want to add to this conversation is that if you are someone, specifically a veteran who is struggling with thoughts of suicide, or you know someone who might be in that situation, the number one recommendation that the VA and everybody out there uh, has really made prominent and upfront is calling the Veterans Crisis Line, which can be found online at veteranscrisisline.net. Someone messed up their URL purchase there, but veteranscrisisline.net. And it can also be reached over the phone at 1-800-273-8255 and then pressing 1. That's 1-800-273-8255 and press 1. Now, that is run by the VA. If that is not your jam or you haven't had the best experience with the VA or don't want to go through that vehicle, there are also some fantastic nonprofits out there that are doing incredible work. And one that I found really uh, helpful in, in compiling many different resources and methods for rehabilitation for veterans who are struggling with adjusting to civilian life or struggling with PTSD and depression or suicidal thoughts is called Mission 22. Mission 22, the number 22 here is somewhat dated now, but it used to be true that every day we lost 22 veterans to suicide. Staggering. Awful. Now that number is is 20, but still far too high. Unacceptable. And Mission 22 really focuses on understanding the nuance behind the underlying causes behind veteran suicide and has a bunch of different solutions and creative ways that they approach providing services to veterans. If you go to mission22.com slash vetintel, You'll find all of the ways that you can join forces with many different nonprofits and advocacy organizations who have your back. I just want our veterans listening to know that we have your back. We have your backs. Like, everyone should have their backs. Our country should have their backs. Individuals should have their backs. Like, everybody should should be supporting service people. The only folks missing that memo seems to be Congress. But that puts you in a long line of people that Congress has been failing lately. So I hope that you know that we here at Stuff Mom Never Told You uh, want to see more veterans continue to thrive and strive in our society together and to feel not alone, especially women veterans who we know experience significantly higher rates of suicide than compared to our uh, non-military, our civilian women population. So if you know a veteran and you haven't talked to her in a while, get out there, reach out. Her life might not be that different from yours after all. So being the kind of person who facilitates connection can be a lifesaver. And honestly, you never know what someone's going through. You never know who's putting on a brave face because they feel like that's what they have to do because they need to be a strong person or a tough person. Honestly, just checking in on our folks, I think, is the most important thing. Absolutely. So, Sminty listeners, we want to hear from you. We know that this is a big, burly, complicated subject matter that we tried to put together in a pretty concise uh, podcast for you. And I know there's stuff we missed. I know there are points that we want to add to the conversation. And that's why it's so critical that we keep this conversation going online and in our inbox. You can tweet at us at MomStuffPodcast. 
Find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. And as always, we love getting your emails at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. Oh, 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 o